We're in Romans chapter 8 from verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, uh, my name's Phil. I'm one of the, the ministers here. It's great to have you here this evening. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we uh, pray that as we look at your word now, the words that the Spirit himself caused to be written, we pray that he would enable us to understand them, that he would drive them deep into our hearts, that we might not just know what they mean, but we might have the strength and the courage to live them out. Amen. How on earth it is that you deal with suffering is something you've got to work out while you're still young. Uh, as you weigh up, you know, do I go with atheism, Buddhism, don't careism, Christianity, whatever way it is that you're tempted to look at the world, you've got to ask one big question of it. Uh, does it have a way of handling suffering, an answer to suffering, a, a kind of a view of suffering that makes sense, that I can live out? If it can't deal with suffering, then frankly ditch it. doesn't matter how attractive, how trendy, how much you, you like reading the philosopher. If they can't speak about suffering in a way that you can live, then just forget it. It's just not worth it. You see, if a, if a belief system, a philosophy, can't handle suffering, it's like having a fire exit that looks beautiful, but actually doesn't open. You need to have an answer to this. You need to work it out while you're young so that you're ready when things happen. And this passage in the Bible that we're going to look at tonight doesn't tell us everything that the, the Bible has to say about suffering, but it does tell us, in one sense, uh, some of the key things. And therefore, uh, whether you're thinking through what you believe, looking into Christianity, or you're a convinced Christian, these are crucial, crucial words for us as we work out whether Christianity is worth following for a start. And also how it is that we'll handle the difficulties of life that will come to all of us. Uh, the Christian life, basically, in the, in the way the Bible speaks about it, is a long and arduous journey. It is a marathon. It is not a sprint. And it's not an armchair ride. It's a marathon. We don't just coast downhill. We run. And it's a long run. Uh, 
And as we trek through this uh, difficult and at times very dangerous world, the Bible says that there are, if you like, two great giants standing in our way. Uh, You've put your trust in Jesus, you're following him, you know that he's promised eternal glory in heaven. But barring the path are two great giants. There's giant sinful desires and there is giant suffering. Don't imagine me, imagine Al still standing up here. <laughs> uh, these, these two great giants, the first is sinful desires. You see, even after we turn to follow Jesus, all of us know the reality that deep in our hearts, there are still longings for things that are horrifically selfish. And that we know are dishonoring to God, damaging to ourselves and damaging to the other people that we say we love. It's a daily battle to resist And to keep going. It's wonderful to read right at the start of Romans 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus' death has paid completely for our sins. We know the penalty is gone. But we also know that the presence of sin remains with us. And verses 1 to 17, if you like, were all about how the Holy Spirit helps us to fight sin. Helps us to want to do what is God's will. Changes our desires and gives us a new power. The second giant, the second opponent, is the the focus of the the remaining verses, these verses, 18 to 27, and that is suffering. Put simply, life can be hard, and when it's hard, we're tempted to doubt that God is good, or even to doubt that God exists, and so we're tempted to give up. And suffering comes in a whole variety of forms. Uh, For some, there's persecution. So if you follow Jesus and you live in North Korea or a Muslim-majority country like Syria or Turkey or Egypt, you may well find yourself in prison. You may find yourself beaten, tortured or killed just because you believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's probably not our experience if we're honest. But I guess many of us will know, as we were hearing a little bit of earlier, the ridicule and the scorning and sneering of colleagues. Uh, Some of us will even probably know the rejection of our families because we follow Jesus. And the thing is, when that happens... There is a voice in us that says this is too costly. It is just not worth it and we're tempted to give up. Secondly, there is just the the general suffering of a fallen world that comes to absolutely everybody. It's not the special providence of Christians. It's actually just normal life in this world. Whether it's the acute bombshell of a, a cancer diagnosis or the death of a relative or a relationship that we just built everything on that implodes. It can be horrible when acute suffering hits us. Other times, it's not the, uh, the acute thing, the, the, the train wreck. It's, it's just the, the gnawing, nagging reality of the disappointment of a life that just doesn't seem to have gone the way we hoped. A life that, well, we feel like we've just been left behind, if we're honest, compared with what we'd expected, what we'd hoped, what our friends and our family seem to have got and seem to want for us. And we get demoralized, we get worn down. And I think for the Christian, although life is no harder to be, for Christians in many ways, there is this unique pain of knowing I've got this God who says he loves me, and yet life's like this. And so suffering can, can really stop us from wanting to follow Jesus. It can be a terribly serious opponent as we seek to follow Jesus all the way safely home. And if you can't relate to that, uh, live a little longer. 
Just live a little longer. Because the truth is that none of us get through this world unscathed. And even if you can't relate to it right now, I guarantee that if you reach out and touch, you can reach somebody else for whom they know exactly what I'm speaking about. So these are relevant things for us to work out. But as we face these, uh, the sobering reality of these two great opponents, the great thing is that God's word says you're not on your own. Because the truth is, if the battle is me versus sin and suffering, game over. Me versus sin and suffering, I haven't got a hope. Spiritually, I'm, I'm a wimp compared with those great giants. There is no way I'll make it all the way to, to eternal life with them opposing me, standing in my way. But Romans 8 says, it's not me versus sin and suffering. There is somebody else with me. It is me and the Holy Spirit versus sin and suffering. And that rather changes things. Because the Holy Spirit is God himself. Almighty God. Not almighty God out there, but almighty God in here, living in us. The truth of Romans 8 is that as great as our opponents are, as mighty and terrifying as the giants ahead of us are, The God who is with us is far mightier and he will get us safely home. Romans 8 was written to encourage you. That's why Paul wrote these words. He wrote them, actually he wrote them to do more than encourage you. He wrote them to assure you, to give you absolute cast iron, certain confidence. Not in you, but in God and in God's promise to get you safely home. That's why he wrote these words. He wrote these words that your minds would be convinced, I will make it by God's mighty strength. And if you like, in one, you can summarize Romans 8. Uh, Can I be sure I'll make it? Yes. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit. There you go. No need to attend the next four sermons. Um, But actually, uh, just up the road from here, uh, the great... 1960s preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones a great Welsh preacher he used to fill Westminster Chapel he preached through Romans uh, in lectures on a Friday night and these verses these 10 verses were 12 one hour lectures I kid you not we're racing tonight They are that important though. They are that important. They merit our study. They merit our attention and our hard work. Okay, let's look through them. First we see uh, thinking our way through suffering in verse 18. Look down with me at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, it is easy to miss the wood for the trees here and jump straight into the detail. What do these verses mean? What do these verses mean? And miss just the big picture of what is Paul's basic approach to strengthening us for suffering. What does Paul say? Suffering's going to come. What, what do I need, Paul? Logic. Rigorous thinking. Theology. That's what you need, Paul says. If you're going to keep going through hardships, you need your brain engaged. He says, uh, verse 18, consider, which is literally make a calculation. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying, oh, I'm really sorry you lost your job. I know what you need, a book of Sudoku puzzles. It's not like logic has the answer to suffering. And I'm not saying that, you know, you never need a, a someone to, you, know, you never need a hug or a, a meal cooked for you or a listening ear. But Paul says the Christians who survive suffering are not the ones who've had the great spiritual experiences. They're the ones who have their minds clearly convinced about the truth. The ones who understand and know deeply and have worked out what it is that God says and what it is that God promises. 
The rock on which you'll stand when the storms of suffering come is not the memory of a great experience of God in the past, actually. It is a clear biblical understanding, which is why Paul's answer to suffering here is biblical logic, an argument for us to follow through, to convince your minds so that your hearts will be changed. And in particular, it's a clear understanding of what we should expect life to be like now in this world and what we should expect life to be like then in the world that Jesus will transform. The Christians who last are the Christians who have the deepest understanding of God's salvation, who've worked out their salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, let's, uh, let's see what he says. Um, as he starts with our heads to change our hearts, he wants this logic on fire, as Lloyd-Jones said, to change our thinking that our hearts will be set on fire for God and set firm in his hope. Firstly, expect suffering. Verses 17 and 18 really couldn't be clearer on that. Uh, Look back at 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. The pattern for the Christian, the follower of Christ, is the pattern of Christ. Suffering in this world, then glory. It's what happened to Jesus, and we follow Jesus. Secondly, After expecting suffering, understand glory. Verse 18, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now it's important to get the image right in here. Uh, It is not that um, you've got this great burden of suffering on you, but if you just understand things, it suddenly becomes light. That's Buddhism or Stoicism. uh, Ways of looking at suffering where you learn not to feel it. Learn not to to be as engaged in it. Learn not to feel as much at all, basically. That's not the image at all here. The image here is actually of a great set of scales. And in one set is very serious, very weighty sufferings. Paul was beaten almost to death. He was flogged 39 times, I think five times. He was shipwrecked twice. He was stoned with, with rocks by people, throwing at his head. He knew suffering. He was rejected, not just by his family, but by his entire people. And he says the suffering, the scales are weighed down on this side. But he says, it's not that I want you to learn to see that what's here is just really very light. He's saying, no, no, no. What I want you to realize is what is going to come here with God in his remade heaven is so wonderful, so awesome, so weighty, so real that it It just outweighs what is happening here. These remain real, these remain hard, and God does not diminish them. But this, what God has promised us, is so good, so rich, so real, that it will completely outweigh anything that we might go through in this world. Anything at all. Now, note again what he actually says. His focus is... We often think uh, life in heaven will be awesome. You know, you'll be able to bounce off cliffs or snow will be warm or the weird, you know, whatever weird things we think about. You know, the sea will never be cold in heaven. It never rains. I don't know how to plants grow, but whatever. We have these, but our focus is on, on the world around us in heaven. But that's not actually Paul's focus here. Look at what he says. He says, they're not worth considering, uh, comparing with the glory that will be revealed not to us, but in us, or for us. 
In Philippians 3.21, Paul writes, When Jesus returns, our lowly bodies will be transformed so they'll be like his glorious body. We'll get a body like Jesus' resurrection body, which will be, uh, relate to our body, the Bible says, like, a, like an acorn relates to an oak tree, like a, like a caterpillar relates to a butterfly. Our real physical body, but somehow transformed like Jesus' resurrection body. That is our hope. We'll be with Jesus, our king and the captain of our salvation, and we'll be like him. No more frustration, no more battle, no more pain, no more faith needed because we have everything. No more fear. Like Jesus, we'll live for eternity in the freedom and joy and confidence of absolute certainty of our Father's love for us. That is our destiny. And now he looks at it in detail. Firstly, we'll see in 19 to 25 that the Holy Spirit helps us in this hope. 19 to 25. The Holy Spirit helps us in this hope. It explains in 19 to 21, firstly, though, that the the fate of the whole created world is bound up in this future for us. Verse 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. In Genesis 3.17, in response to our sinful rejection of God, the earth was cursed by God. In a way that's beyond our understanding, the fate of the world was bound up with our behavior and the earth was disordered because of us. And one day the earth, the creation, it says here, will be liberated from this decay that has enchained it. One day it will return to the way it should be. It will no longer produce earthquakes or Ebola or famines or floods. There will be no decay in God's new world. Now some things are clear in these verses. Uh, The future of the world is linked to the future of God's people. Our transformation is tied to the transformation of the earth and our revelation as God's children will somehow be the moment when the earth is transformed. But there's a lot that's pretty confusing. I mean, how on earth is all that going to happen? What is it actually even going to look like? I think we get a glimpse. I don't know. I'm slightly off on a limb here. I think we get a glimpse in the earthly life of Jesus. Ordinary looking bloke. Doesn't stand out. Just regular manual laborer. Looks like everybody else, probably slightly stronger arms and more gnarled hands because he was a carpenter. But other than that, looked ordinary. But every now and then, the curtains parted. Every now and then, you got this glimpse and he was revealed to creation as the son of God. A storm raging on a lake. Uh, Sailors terrified they're going to drown and he stands up and creation recognizes him as he says, be still. Everything still. Sickness, disease, leprosy ravaging through a town. People being slowly dying as as sickness spreads. And then Jesus stands up and creation recognizes his touch. And sickness has to run away. And decay has to disappear. You see, there are moments in Jesus' earthly life when when creation recognizes, when the sun is revealed, if you like. And one day, 
One day, it won't just be a, a small corner of the Middle East for just a few short months at one point in history. It'll be the entire vastness of the cosmos for all eternity. And it's not just God the Son revealed as the Son of God at that point. It's all of God's children being revealed. And at that moment, the creation will do what it was meant to do. And it will be released from its decay and disorder. And it will serve us. And it will fit us. And it will be right for us to live eternal lives in. And just as the the creation recognized Jesus, it will recognize us. And it will be liberated slightly off on a limb, but I think that's pretty, I'm convinced, and it's a wonderful thought, so we're going to go with it. And in the meantime, what do we do? As we wait this transformation, we groan for glory. Verse 22, we know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. It's an extraordinary image of, of the whole created order is in the agonies of childbirth, writhing in pain. But it's a pain, of course, that is filled with hope. It's an agony that brings wonderful new life, which is why in the pictures of uh, Princess Kate, she's smiling now because she's got a baby with her. The image then changed, thankfully. Uh, We move away from the delivery ward and onto the farm, which um, is a relief for most of the men here. Uh, And he says, uh, it's the first fruits is what we're talking about here. The the first apples have ripened on the tree. The first ears of, of corn have have turned gold in the field and now we groan with longing for the full harvest and so verse 24 we've been saved through trusting in Jesus death and we've received the Holy Spirit bringing life and relationship with God and now the Spirit is like the first fruits the first taste of what is going to come what will be ours for all eternity And as we see the changes that he brings in us already now, not perfect, and we're frustrated with how slowly we're changing, but we do love God. And we are changing. And so we can see a glimpse in ourselves, in the the Spirit's work of, of what one day will be full and final and perfect. You know how it is at weddings. I don't know if anybody else finds this, but I find, and I'm sure it's not just me, no matter how much you eat beforehand, by the time you get to the reception venue, you are absolutely starving. Yeah, it's not just me. It is, I don't know what it is. There's something that happens at weddings that just makes you hungry. And it's always, uh, we're just going to have a four and a half hour receiving line. You are kidding me. And the wedding breakfast will be served at 8 p.m. (laughs) What? I don't know why they do it. But then something happens. Uh, Then they bring out the canapes. And um, every man in the room is like, where are they coming from? I'm standing at that entrance. Uh, And two things happen when the canapes are brought out. One thing, finally, you you just relax a bit because you've got food. You can keep standing. You know, it's getting to that stage and you're like, I'm not sure I can go on much longer. I didn't make a will before I came to this wedding. And yeah. But you, you feel like you can carry on because you've had some food finally. Even if it's only a cheesy, salmon nibbly thing, you've had something to sustain you. And secondly, if the canapes are any good, oh my goodness, they make you even more hungry for dinner. Like, if this is what the canapes taste like, 
oh, it's going to be a good evening. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit is the first fruits. In other words, he's, he's the taste that enables us to keep going. We've had something, and so we can keep going. He's the water station on the marathon. But also, he makes us groan because, you, oh, when you've, when you've seen God change you a bit, when you've seen one besetting sin, one awful thing, that you just, that anger and, and just bitterness towards your parents, when God has released you from that, you just long to be released from the rest of your sin. And so in one sense, uh, the Holy Spirit is the first fruits. It encourages us. He, seeing his work in our hearts makes us, oh, it gives us strength to carry on. But in another sense, it makes us groan because we just long now for perfection. We've seen the start and we can't wait for God to finish his work. And so we wait. Note again from this passage, this is not the age when we have it all. There are too many Christian teachers who pluck verses out of context to lie to us, to tell us, you can have everything now. Paul is very clear here. You don't hope for what you already have, verse 24. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently. We wait patiently. This is the age of waiting, the Bible says. And having received the first taste, we, we wait, uh, verse 23, eagerly, and verse 25, patiently. That is, uh, the Holy Spirit enables us to wait patiently, to keep going, to keep plodding, fighting every day, resisting sin every day, fleeing from sin every day, trusting in God, turning to believe the promises of his word every single day, doggedly plodding on, because we know what God has promised God will do. So we're patient. We don't give up after a year or a decade. We keep hanging on. But it's not just patiently, it's also eagerly. And this word is the very opposite of sort of passively waiting. This is, this is a dog on the leash when it can see its food in the bowl. <laughs> this, is, this is the groom at the front of the church looking to the back and seeing the bride approach. It's, it is just a straining, eager, desperate word. It was extraordinary uh, reading the, the reports this week about those executions in Indonesia. I don't know if you, you saw the reports. Uh, it was huge news, especially in Australia, because uh, a couple of Australian citizens were amongst those who were killed for drug trafficking. One of the most amazing things was the, was the story of, the, by all accounts, the ringleader of the traffickers, this chap called Michael Chan, who'd become a pretty bad lad. Uh, he was a drug dealer. He was in all sorts of trouble. And finally, he'd been caught uh, running a heroin smuggling ring. But on death row in Indonesia, in a pretty miserable prison from the sounds of it, Jesus had got a hold of him. He'd turned and found forgiveness in Jesus and the Holy Spirit had given him new life. And everything had changed. He'd become a pastor in prison. Uh, He'd started sharing with other prisoners the hope that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, of course, desperate people do anything to... You saw the reality of it with what happened leading up to the execution. So the accounts coming through tell us that he led the other prisoners in singing hymns of praise to God. And as they were taken before the firing squad, he refused a blindfold because he said, I'm looking forward to what is coming. He was eagerly awaiting his saviour, Jesus Christ. Here on earth, he'd already tasted the first fruits. He'd seen huge change in in a heart full of bitterness and crime, set free by Jesus. And now... Tonight, while we sit here, he is enjoying the harvest with Jesus in heaven. We're people of waiting. 
And the Holy Spirit helps us wait. And the Holy Spirit is the first fruit that makes you realize you're not an idiot for waiting. He will do what he's promised. And then finally, in the last verses, we see that the Holy Spirit helps us pray. As throughout chapter 8, he's teaching us how it is we keep going and how it is the Holy Spirit in particular enables us to hang on, to plod on in this life. And that brings him to prayer. Verse 26 begins in the same way. In other words, in the same way that the Holy Spirit helps you to fight sin, verses 1 to 17. In the same way that the Holy Spirit enables you to keep going even though life can be really hard, verses 18 to 25. In that same way, verse 26. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. We need to pray when we're suffering because prayer is our lifeline to God's help. And when we can't pray, the Spirit keeps the lifeline going. That's what these verses teach. Um, but the question is, what is actually going on? Because they, are, they do sound odd to us. Is this some sort of mystical thing? Is this you know, praying in tongues? You know, how do you groan in the Spirit? What does it sound like if I'm praying groaning in the Spirit? You know, what on earth does that sound like? There are all sorts of um, weird suggestions made and all sorts of strange theories. But actually, I think the passage is quite clear when you look at the context of Romans 8. There are two things going on. Uh, There is a problem. We don't know what to pray. There is a solution. The Spirit prays for us. We don't know what to pray. The Spirit prays for us. Let's look at it. Um, I think we can answer it very simply, If uh, what's going on in this section, by answering two questions. What's our weakness? And what is the groaning? Firstly, what's the weakness in verse 27? Well, it's answered um, there. We do not know what we ought to pray for, verse 26. It's a a deficiency, a weakness, a lack of knowledge. The Spirit intercedes for us, that is, he prays for us, when we cannot work out what we should pray. I think it means in particular two things. We don't understand ourselves. We don't know what to ask for. We so often spend years praying for stuff that actually we look back on and think, that wouldn't have been any good for me if God had given it to me. We just don't know ourselves. But also, we don't know God's will, and so... You know, a relative gets cancer and I don't know whether God's going to heal them. So I don't know whether to pray for them to be healed or pray for them to grow in patience and longing for, for the new creation. I just don't know. So I don't know what to pray. But when we don't know what to pray, we have this wonderful assurance. The Holy Spirit does know what to pray. And he's praying for us. He's praying just the right things. He is praying exactly those things that we would pray if we knew everything that God knows. How different would our prayers be if we knew what God knows? The Spirit knows, and he prays for us. You see, that's what's happening in verse 27. It's saying, just as God knows our minds as we pray, he knows the Spirit's mind. That's why it's written that way around in verse 27. It makes it, We find it odd. We think, uh, surely it should say, he who searches our hearts knows the mind. Surely it should say, the Spirit searches our hearts, rather than God searches the mind of the Spirit in that verse. But no, that's just the point. The Spirit is praying for us and God, who searches our hearts and knows our prayers, he also obviously knows the mind and prayers of the Spirit. And those prayers are perfect prayers being offered for us when we don't know what to pray. Okay, 
quick caveat before we move on to the second question of what is the groaning, which is this. It is not, it is when we can't pray, when we don't know what to pray that he prays for us. It's not when we can't be bothered to pray. It's not that I can't be bothered to pray, but thankfully the Spirit prays for me. 15 minutes more on the snooze button. <laughs> this is just fantastic. I don't even have to bother with praying. He's doing it for me. Wonderful. You know, maybe my snoring is his groaning. Great. You know, it's not saying that. It is not when I can't be bothered. It's when I can't pray. And when life comes crashing in around us, those times will hit us. And it's wonderful to know that even then, we're not cut off from a relationship of prayer with God. Even when we can't pray, the Spirit keeps praying for us but what is his groaning Uh, literally it's in groans without words now it can't be praying in tongues because in 1 corinthians 12 30 tongues are a gift for some believers not all believers but this is an encouragement for all christians so so what is it now lots of people teach that this is some sort of spiritual wordless mystical prayer an advanced level christian trance thing that's going on but that is clearly nonsense Because you never read Jesus praying wordless, kind of just my soul directly communing with God type prayers. And we never read Paul or the other apostles doing that or encouraging us to do it. Prayer involves words. Prayer is a relationship of speaking to God. So it would be very odd if the ultimate form of prayer was not speaking at all. This is not some pinnacle of prayer for us to aim at. A prayer where I don't even use words anymore. This is not the pinnacle to aim at. This is the parachute. That when everything else has gone horribly wrong, God will keep us alive by the Spirit's prayers. Not the pinnacle, it's the parachute. Pilots don't see parachutes. Pilots who fly in a plane and have a parachute, they don't see the parachute as, oh gosh, I can't wait till I get to use that. That's the pinnacle of flying. (laughs) Uh -uh. The pinnacle is when you, you fly and then you land and you walk out the plane. That's the pinnacle. Parachute is when everything's gone horribly wrong, but it keeps you alive. This is not the pinnacle of prayer, some sort of wordless state where the Spirit prays for me. This is the parachute when I can't pray, but the Spirit keeps the lifeline going. And somehow he keeps me alive. You see, the groaning word actually links back to verses 22 and 23. It's the word that Paul uses for our our longing for Jesus And for his transformation, creation groans, we groan, and the spirit groans. In other words, he is expressing that longing for Jesus' transformation. That's why he uses the word groaning. When we can't pray, he is still expressing that longing and praying just the things that need to be prayed to get us safely home. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know as we face the difficulties and struggles of life. Some of us have been through horrific things. How wonderful to know that even in the heart of it, even in those days, weeks, months, when you could not pray, the Spirit maintained that relationship between you and the Father. So what? So what? The Spirit gives us strength to carry on. That's what so what? The Spirit gives us a taste of what is to come and the Spirit helps us pray as we struggle. And in the light of that, do not give up. Don't give up. Keep working hard at understanding the salvation you have. That is how God's Spirit will keep you going. By your mind understanding the salvation and hope that you have so that your heart is set firm on and convinced of and filled with the love of God. 
Keep studying God's word. Keep working hard to dig into his word and then to live it out by the Spirit's strength. The Holy Spirit comes alongside us as we do that. There's um, uh, one of the most famous uh, long-distance swimmers of all time. There's a woman called Florence May Chadwick. I find her extraordinary. I, um, some people swim freestyle. I swim free of style. It's more like sort of drowning in slow motion. And her, ex- her exploits were extraordinary. She was the, the, one of the first long-distance swimmers and certainly the first um, female to, to break all sorts of records. Uh, she swam the channel in 1950. And then in 1952, she swam between Catalina Island and California, which has very strong currents and is 26 miles distance. And she didn't make it. She swam for 15 hours. And about 14 hours in, a heavy fog descended and exhausted, she had to be hauled out of the water. And when they hauled her into the boat, exhausted, when she said, I'm going to drown, she found out she was only a mile away from the shore. Now, people often tell that story and then say, the next time she swam it, there was no fog and she saw it. Actually, no, the next time the fog did descend again, around 14, 15 hours in, but this time she made it. And they asked her how she made it. And she said, because I'd seen the shore before and I kept in my mind an image of the shore that was to come. She was able to keep that image in her mind. And so although the fog descended, she was able to keep going. It was that, that mental picture of, of the shore of California and the crowd of people she knew were there, cheering, waiting for her, that kept her going. And you see, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is in many ways like that encouragement. He is a, he's not a piggyback ride so that we don't have to do anything. The Holy Spirit is not like her just getting in the boat and being taken all the way across to California. The Holy Spirit was that image. The first fruits for her were the image of what was to come. She knew what the shore looked like. She knew where, how loud the crowds would be screaming. And the Holy Spirit enables us to know what is coming as we study God's word, to believe those promises, to look inside and see what he's already done and believe what is coming in the future. And the Holy Spirit is also like those arms that pulled her out the first time when she thought she would drown. When we just can't go on, he is what stops us drowning as Christians, that keeps us connected to the Father, that keeps us knowing his blessing and his sustaining grace. And the Holy Spirit will enable you to keep going, to keep trusting, to keep believing, to keep praying. So even when the fog descends and you can't see what's going on and you don't know what's happening and you feel absolutely shattered, he will help you see the distant shore that is coming. He'll help you believe you'll make it. And he'll help you hear the encouragement of God as you keep going. I'm going to pray. Our Father, as we pray to you now, we are amazed by this wonderful promise that the Holy Spirit is a praying God. Father, we thank you that when we struggle to pray, when we struggle to know what to pray, that you are with us, that you sustain us. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us by the Spirit not to give up, but to get up and to carry on. Help us to have a clear view of what is to come a clear view of the Lord Jesus Christ and his promises for us that we might not give up and give in. Help us to keep running. Amen.